people will never remain free if they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital interests. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. Praise Yahweh and pass the ammunition. The Restoration Hour with Pastor Eli James. Well, 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 here we are. We're actually live and on the air after great difficulties of mastering all the required settings and checking every dot, every box that uh, all these different programs that we run to go live on the air. And Paul has done a masterful job of rebuilding the website and getting these shows going. But uh, the problem has been my live shows going on the air live, and that's been the main issue. Uh, I had a successful show Friday night, the Always Covenant People, but then Genesis to Revelation wouldn't work this morning. So as I have been learning more and more about how this blankety-blank program works, I finally was able, yeah, technology is a problem. No, I, ch- I didn't check the right box, <laughs> right? But it's still technology. Uh, so Paul has been changing administration uh, names and passwords, and I've had to keep a record of that, and uh, I failed to check a single box that assigns this program to Eli James, okay? Because Paul had changed the name, my name as administrator, and uh, so I changed that, and then he decided to change it back again, and now here we go. I I checked the correct box, changed the broadcaster settings accordingly, and here we are. So I think we're good from now on, I hope, until the judgment day. Until the Judgment Day, there's no doubt until the Judgment Day, we will never have a single technical problem again. But nevertheless, these last two weeks have been incredible for us, for Paul English, for Brother Hebert, and everybody affiliated with uh, Eurofolk Radio, and uh, friends and relations and family, okay, uh, David Gehari, has had a death in the family. He had to drive up to New Jersey to attend a funeral. My nephew died, and so I was up in Chicago commiserating with my sister. He's way down in Florida, and so there's no way we're going to drive or fly all the way down there for the funeral, so they're just going to have a very small private service there. And so we've just been busy, crackerjack busy, for the last two or three weeks, and it's been hard to find a time to make corrections and learn learn a new system, although it's not real new. It's just that there are certain things that Paul taught me that I never knew before, and so now I'm able to fix things that I wasn't able to fix before. So that's good. That's very good. Now all we need is a real programmer to take Paul's place. We have somebody lined up if we can get Paul and him together. Paul just needs to teach him a few things. So he can focus on speak-free radio. And by the way, uh, David Gehari, uh, I just found this out a couple of days ago, David Gehari and 
Paul English, our partners in Speak Free Radio. And, you know, they've been having issues too, especially since, and I warned Paul about this, that if you don't have or don't specify identity presenters, they're going to be all over the place on the Bible. They'll express opinions that are totally ignorant, such as the Jews are God's chosen people, and the Jews are the Israelites of the Old Testament. And I've been getting complaints from so many places that these people are ignoramuses, right? But that's the risk you take when you have a totally free speech radio station like Speak Free Radio is. So all the best to them. Uh, It's an experiment. And uh, hopefully he will be able to get better and better show hosts. And we know that a lot of these white nationalists, and I've been preaching this for decades now, a lot of these white nationalists think they know the Jews, but they don't know nothing. They don't know nothing, as they say down south. And uh, they simply do not get the identity position, and uh, they carry on as if they know what they're talking about, but they really are clueless about the fact that the Jews are not the Israelites of the Bible, and we, the Caucasian people, are those Israelites. Only the identity message makes any kind of sense out of the Bible. Uh, And I think I talked to Paul about this yesterday and we decided that I should go on the air with him on Spring Free Radio and do a show presenting the identity point of view. And we'll try to invite all of the other show hosts at least listen in, if not call in, and uh, you know get this issue clarified. That, that issue is the most important issue of the world today. And like the song says, nothing else matters. Nothing else matters matters. You have to get this issue correct. You have to know who Israel is. If you think the Jews are Israel, then you are in the wrong ballpark altogether. You can't possibly understand the Bible. Anyway, that's my little rant for today. Getting a little frustration out here. But in any case, I'm in good spirits because I've also been successfully dealing with my health issues not totally resolved yet, but uh, I've been replacing, well, let me put it this way. I've been adding backup batteries to my desktop computers because when I use the battery backup, instead of plugging it directly into the wall, my radiation problems are reduced by almost 75%. So I get much less radiation I haven't had any headache and eye pain issues since I started using these backup batteries. And fortunately, my laptop, my HP laptop, which I've had for probably now at least 12 years, if not longer, I've had it upgraded as well. When it's on battery power, that that is when I unplug it, it does not radiate. It's virtually zero. So another technology problem solved And I've also been doing intermittent fasting for my leaky gut syndrome. And I'm I'm sure I have uh, pre-diabetes as well or insulin resistance. And so uh, I don't mind uh, getting rid of all the processed carbohydrates. I've known that they're bad for my health. I I haven't been eating much of those. So for, for today, for example, 
I've had two teaspoons of sugar. That's it. One for my morning coffee and one for the peanut butter bread that I baked very successfully. I made a nice big loaf of peanut butter bread, which is made of nothing but peanut butter and baking soda, and the recipe says one teaspoon of sugar. So I put one teaspoon of sugar in my whole loaf, which weighs a ton because it's peanut butter. (laughs) Anyway, I can eat that peanut butter bread because it's not carbs. It's peanuts are, are, uh, what do you call it, Uh, protein. Plus, they're a vegetarian source of protein. And so that was about four hours ago that I had one slice of it. And I'm not dealing with my congestion nearly as bad as I was the last three or four months. Okay. So anyway, Jeffrey says, the iTerra device, tetrahertz for wellness. Oh, okay. Thank you for that. I will definitely check that out, Jeffrey. Yeah, we need to have technology that counteracts the impending 5G cooking of all of humanity. (laughs) And, of course, we know that in a developed country such as America, Jeffrey asks, well, let me finish my sentence, such as America, these are the ones that are going to get 5G irradiation first, They don't care about the African countries. They were just using Africa to test their vax infertility studies on. And that was the show I did on Friday night. So unfortunately, I have not been able to upload that show onto the website. I have no idea why. Every time I've tried it, it it simply won't load up. So that's probably because I was using my backup computer just to test things out. And my battery ran out with about two minutes left of airtime. And that may have done something to the uh, record, which ordinarily loads up very easily. Anyway, uh, the problems with our website started when I tried to upload a show that I did about Nashville, Tennessee. There was an attack done on Nashville, Tennessee, and I forget the exact nature of the attack. It was about five years ago, maybe six years ago. And uh, the, the the deep state staged an attack in Nashville, Tennessee. They, they blew up. They did all kinds of explosives. And they targeted one neighborhood, I think, to get at certain records there. So they just staged a, a terrorist attack so that they could get that at the records in the basement of this bank building. Some of you may recall what uh, that situation was. Anyway, that's the show I tried to load up. And after I loaded it up, that's when the site got a bug. And that show about the Nashville false flag kept on recreating itself. Like cancer. Like cancer cells recreate themselves (laughs) spontaneously. And so your body gets overloaded with this particular cancer cell. And so this is what's happening to our scheduler. And I looked at, I found the offending file because there were so many instances of it. There were about 20 instances of this file. And so I started frantically deleting as many of these files as I could. It was the same file that having reproduced itself until I got down to about five instances of the file. 
and I could not delete them anymore. They simply refused to delete. And so I contacted Paul about this, and he looked at it, and he said, this this file is reproducing itself, and it's going to overload the website. Can you do something about it? I'm trying. I'm trying. But I couldn't. He couldn't either. So he made the decision then and there to, we're just going to rebuild the show from scratch. We wanted to get a new uh, service provider anyway because our scheduler has too little, uh, what do you call it, data. Too little data. So we went to a different provider that gives us four or five times more data. So the chances of overloading the website are much slimmer. So all is good. All is good when things work. So the good ship, you're a ship. <laughs> Slip of the tongue. The good ship, Eurofolk Radio, is back afloat. Okay, Jeffrey asks, why not almond butter instead? Well, if, if you can make bread out of almond butter, I'll give it a try. But this is peanut butter and a good old-fashioned uh, a ton, a ton <laughs> per box in weight peanut butter, uh, and you mix it with eggs and a little bit of milk. Like I said, one teaspoon of sugar. You whip it all up, and uh, what else? Uh, a little bit of vinegar. I'm trying to think of the other ingredients. Anyway, you whip it up really nice, and uh, you know, silky smooth. You know, like a bread dough, but it doesn't have to be as thick. It can be a little runny. You pour it into a baking pan. You grease the baking pan. And uh, for one one jar, one official jar of peanut butter, you mix that all together and bake it at 400, uh, th- sorry, 350 degrees for 45 minutes. And wow, I tried it. Yeah, skip the skippy. Okay, yeah, it's probably GMO, Jeffrey. I, I, I think I hear what you're saying, right? So uh, you have to check the label. Anyway, I still have two jars of that left, so rather than throw them out, I'll make most of bread with that peanut butter. And it's not, it's not carbohydrates. It's not processed carbohydrates. Well, to the extent that peanuts are processed to make peanut butter, I'm sure they must heat them up or something. So anyway, yeah, if, if almond butter is better, I'll try that out. I'll try anything to uh, get a clear head again. And so, as I've been saying, I'm getting better and better. I'm learning more and more from, thanks for all the suggestions from people who've been helping helping me out and uh, solving these issues. I'm getting a lot of technical advice from people about computer radiation, and that has been helping me immensely. So, I'm thinking by this time, within a month, I should have this whole situation licked. So, for today, for example, I've only had to blow my nose about 20 times as opposed to the several hundred <laughs> that I have been doing for the last few months. It's been getting better and better and better as each day goes along. So I'm, I'm getting close to licking this situation. So your prayers would be appreciated. I need a final solution. Yeah, the insect parts. Yeah, they probably grind up insects into, into the peanut butter, but maybe almond butter as well. And you know, don't you know, they're trying to get us to eat insects. That's going to be the staple of our diet for future generations if the Great Reset people have their way. And hydrate, yes. Yes, very good. Yeah, so in clean air, uh, getting rid of, uh, what do you call it, mold in my apartment. I've got an air freshener. I'm doing everything I possibly can 
and all of it put together is starting to work. So thanks for all your suggestions and tips. Thanks for also for those of you who have donated to our ministry. And uh, I was planning on doing a repeat of what we, our congregation talked about last Sunday, which was who killed Christ. And I'm going to put that off uh, until next week. Uh, yeah, on long walks. I've been doing that too, Jeffrey. Yeah, I've been going for long walks every night, about a mile to a mile and a half. Clean air. This is the country. This is no longer the city of Chicago, right? And uh, etc. So, uh, and, and lots of exercise, as much exercise as I can squeeze in to my all of a sudden really busy schedule. So anyway, so but uh, this, I, I I want to do more preparation on that subject. So although I may have an interview with Alfred Schaefer who was previously uh, my frequent guest on Eurofolk Radio before he got arrested. He was living in Canada, and he was extradited to Germany, where he served something like three and a half years for Holocaust denial. Holocaust denial. So he may be my guest next Saturday, depending on his schedule. I thought I assumed he was back in Canada. I talked to him today. He's actually still in Germany. So I told him our time slot is 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. He said, oh, that's great. That's 2 a.m. in Munich. Uh, can we pick another time slot? So I told him, well, I'll get back to you. We'll see what we can do. Anyway, so Alfred Schaefer is going to be a future guest uh, on Eurofolk Radio. Can't wait for that. Uh, great, it was great conversing with him once again. And, uh, you know, he, he's a guy who who took all the risks and he spent jail time for his beliefs, which is really courageous of him to do. So anyway, I, I corresponded him with why he was in prison. The one good thing about all this is that German prisons aren't nearly as bad and hard on white people as American prisons are. American prisons are absolutely anti-white, pro-black, pro-Muslim, pro-Jewish, you name it, anything that, is anti-white, our prison system loves. So, so the topic for tonight is the merchants of Babylon. And this is the topic of part two of my 666 series. I did part one, which is up on BitChute. If you go to BitChute at, uh, and uh, log into or search for the Eurofolk radio channel on BitChute, it's uh, a very well-received video detailing the fact that the Gates jab is, in fact, the mark of the beast. I think that I've provided the most documentation of anybody to prove that it is, in fact, the mark of the beast, bar none. Okay, so I also wanted to talk about Revelation, and that's, of course, Revelation thirteen seventeen, And I also wanted to talk about Revelation eighteen twenty three in which it states that Mystery Babylon will use pharmakia, translated as sorceries in the KJV, to deceive the people. Oh, (laughs) Jeffrey wants to know who killed Christ. Oh, you're not going to steal my thunder, are you? (laughs) Well, we all know who killed Christ. We know it was the Jews, but the Jews deny it vociferously. And so I will analyze 
both the scriptures involved and Jewish denials and how these Jewish denials simply fall flat, okay? So that will be the substance of that show. And I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. And but I'll, I'll just tip it off real, real quick. If anybody you know claims that the Romans killed Christ instead of the Jews, the punchline is John 19.11, where Jesus says to Pilate when he asks him, why don't you let me set you free? Is there anything I could I could I could set you free or I could have you crucified? And Jesus says to him, Well, the man, the one, the person or the group, the one who sent me to you bears the greater guilt for my destruction. Didn't let Rome off the hook, but he clearly says that Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, i.e. the Edomite Jews, bear the greater guilt for his execution than the Romans do. And I just finished, I think I'm going to have to keep everybody in suspense now that I'm back on the air. I just finished a seven-part series on the Herodians. It's up on Eurofolk Radio and it's going to air in one continuous show tomorrow. Starting at, I have to start using military time like Dave Gehari does, uh, 1,400 hours, 2 p.m. or thereabouts. Uh, it's either 1,400 hours or 1,600 hours. And uh, I still need a, a programmer because Paul just doesn't have the time to update the schedule here on the Eurofolk Radio, the uh, WordPress site which is just another one of the programs we use to, to run this whole operation. So the, the radio site and the WordPress site, which contains uh, most of the print material and the videos we put up, is a totally different site from the radio site. And they have different passwords and all that. So there's a lot to learn, a lot to know, and therefore lots to go wrong, right? So I hope we're all over that. Speak Free Radio is having the same growing pains that Eurofolk Radio has had to undergo, but since it's an updated or newer version, because our old version had a lot of old stuff on it that needed to go, and so Paul decided, okay, let's just trash the whole thing and start over, which is what he did. Thank you, Paul, for all your hard work. All right, so so if anybody suggests to you that it was the Romans that killed Christ and not the Jews, just show them, John 19.11, and ask him, who delivered Christ to Pilate? Who was it? The answer is in the previous chapter, chapter 18, where it talks about Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin delivering Yahshua Messiah over to Pontius Pilate, who says at least 10 times in the New Testament, I find no guilt in this man. And, okay, you can also point out John 7, 1, which says, Jesus would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. So if you point out those two verses to any skeptic or anyone who thinks the Jews are God's chosen people and therefore could not have executed Christ, 
just point out those two verses and also inform them the Jews are not Israel. And they did execute him. Now, the merchants of Babylon. So this is part two of our, my 666 series, which is going to be videotaped and presented uh, both on Anglo-Saxon Israel and here at Earfolk Radio and anywhere else I can post it, including BitChute, to explain to people who Mystery Babylon is. And the, the non-identity pastors out there are utterly clueless. Number one, they think the Bible was written to, five, by, and for about Jews, which it isn't. It's written to, by, for, and about Israelites and Judahites. And uh, if you think that the <laughs> that bandit state, I have to watch my language, that bandit state in Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy about the Israelites, you're sadly mistaken. They are the synagogue of Satan. So here we go, the merchants of Babylon. Introduction. Fiat money to the fractional reserve banking system. The eight beasts of Revelation. Section one, Babylonian society. A, Babylonian religious practices, Baal worship, and subheading one, human sacrifice and cannibalism. Causing a child to pass through the fire was the standard euphemism for child sacrifice in the ancient world. The high places were sacrificial cults or places that had grown up in the countryside. Since human sacrifice was the most horrendous of the religious perversions that occurred at these shrines, the term high places became a synonym for shrines to Baal engaged in human sacrifice. Of course, there was also cannibalism there. Baalbek, but I think that was mainly practiced just by the priests. Baalbek was just such a place. Now allow me to turn your attention to Nimrod, as Baal was also known. It is important that you know that Nimrod incorporated into his worship system the grisly practice of human sacrifice and cannibalism. Our authority, Hislop, says, quote, The priests of Nimrod or Baal were necessarily required to eat of the human sacrifices, and thus it has come to pass that Kana Baal, he spells that C-A-H-N-A-B-A-L, Kana Baal, Kana meaning priest on Baal, referring to Baal, is the established word cannibal for our own in our own tongue for a devourer of human flesh. Subheading 2, temple prostitution and orgies in the groves. Now what has this got to do with banking? You will find out very shortly. The two principal deities of the ancient Babylon were Baal and Ishtar. Baal was the god of war and the elements, and Ishtar was the goddess of fertility, and Bill Gates is the god of infertility, both human and agricultural. These two deities have roots going back before Babylon to Nimrod at Babel and to Assyria. Through the ages, they were imported into other nations and under different names, but always retaining these same basic characteristics. Baal was also called Bel, Baalat, Molech, Merodach, Mars, and Jupiter, and was frequently represented as a bull. Ishtar was also called Aphrodite, Astarte, Ashtoreth, Sibylle, 
or Sybil, Diana Europa. How did Europa get such a name? Isis, Semiramis, and Venus. The two main elements in the worship of Baal were fire and human sacrifice, usually children. The groves mentioned in the Bible were places where sex orgies with neighbors and strangers occurred. Ishtar was worshipped via offerings of produce and money, as well as through fornication with temple prostitutes. It is this last characteristic that helps make the tie between religious Babylon and the various kings and merchants associated with her. In his book, The Secret of Crete, C-R-E-T-E, H.G. Wunderlich reports that before marriage, every woman in Babylon was required to go to the temple of Ishtar and lie with a stranger. How would you like to go through that ritual, dear Christian ladies? We have a similar report from Gerhard Herm in his book, The Phoenicians, where women in the Canaanite cities of Tyre, Sidon, and Byblos were required to become prostitutes for a day and give themselves to foreign guests during the spring festival. Thus, prostitution, as an enticement for traveling businessmen, became an essential part of the religion. This festival survives today in the name of Easter, which is derived from the word Ishtar. Note, you know, I've always wondered why the Catholic Church never had done away with, uh, what's that called in New Orleans? That festival of... uh, or orgiastic revelry the Catholics do during Lent? Really? During Lent? This is how you prepare for the risen Christ? Mardi Gras? Really? Those are Catholics that do that. And of course, strangers too. Why in the world has the Catholic Church not abolished Mardi Gras? Maybe it's because they originated it. Note that the women were were to prostitute themselves with strangers or foreigners. Sex, money, slavery, and religion were intimately tied together as part of temple worship. One of the main points that I wish to bring home to you is the fact that indebtedness to bankers is just as much a form of slavery as literal slavery. Those of us in the patriot movement know this very well. But borrowers do not perceive it as slavery until they can't pay their bills. The debt slaves eventually begin to realize that the usurers and the government are working together to deprive the citizens of their property. Exodus 22.25 If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. More? Again, that's Exodus 22:25. If one of your brethren becomes poor and falls into poverty among you, then you shall help him, like a stranger or a sojourner. And that word stranger is probably from the Hebrew word ger, and not from uh, other words that might mean a person of a different race. That he may live with you. Take, oh, right? That he may live with you. Take no usury, or interest from him. But fear your God that your brother may live with you. You shall not lend him your money for usury, nor lend him your food at a profit. 
That's Leviticus 25, 35 through 37. From Nehemiah, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money or food or anything that is lent out at interest. I also, with my brethren and my servants, am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. Restore now to them, even this day, their lands, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses. Also a hundredth of the money and the grain, the new wine and the oil that you have charged them. Nehemiah 5, verses 10 and 11. We need to have a jubilee big time because the biblical jubilee is the year when all debts are canceled and all Israelites have their property returned to them. And of course, that's going to be the judgment day, folks, because the Jew moneylenders who have put us into debt slavery will get payback big time at the second coming. Excuse me one second. I needed to wet my whistle. All right, let's continue. B, Babylonian economy. Just as Nebuchadnezzar was driven from the company of men, the kingdom of Babylon was driven from the company of the other kingdoms. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was where the concept of fractional reserve banking was born. Okay, underline that. Fractional reserve banking. It was also where the concept of banker advisors was born. It was an ancient Babylon where promissory notes, receipts for goods, first began to circulate as money. These receipts took the form of clay tablets, pretty much like the characters in the BC comic strip used to use. Here's how Professor L.R. Ray, W-R-A-Y, explains it. Tax payments by farmers became standardized in terms of quantities of wheat or barley grain. These grain standards formed the basis for all the early money of account units, such as the mina, shekel, lira, and pound. Money then originated not as a cost-minimizing medium of exchange, but as a unit of account in which debts to the palace, which represented tax liabilities, were measured. As the area over which taxes were imposed increased, palaces found it useful to farm out tax collections to private farmers. So that this expression, tax farmer, is to be taken literally. These were actual real farmers who, I guess, had uh, their second gig <laughs> collecting taxes for the banksters. Now, they were not yet banksters who loan out money. They weren't. It was basically whatever, if you got into debt and you borrowed money from somebody and who knows what the, or like a bushel of grain, they would add a half bushel or a half shekel or something to the payback as usury. But of course, we are forbidden to do that. But this is where this, this process began. So, so they, they farmed out tax collections to literal farmers. The first evidence of lending at interest comes from the practice of payment of taxes by the tax farmers, who then took bond servants and charged interest on the village debts. 
The clay Shubati received tablets, record these and other debts. So Shubati is, I guess, the Sumerian word for clay tablet. Each tablet indicated a quantity of grain, the word Shubati, the name of the person by whom received, and the date and the seal of the receiver. The tablets were either stored in temples where they would be safe from tampering or sealed in cases which would have to be broken to get to the tablet. Unlike the tablets stored in temples, the case tablets could and did circulate. A debt could be canceled and taxes paid by delivering a tablet recording another's debt, whereupon the case which recorded the canceled debt could be broken to verify the debt terms. This was general practice for several thousand years, he says. In other words, taxes, debts, and price lists existed for thousands of years, with clay tablets circulating before anyone had the bright idea of reducing transaction costs by creating money through stamping precious metals to coins. Okay, so these clay tablets, he says, circulated for thousands of years as a form of circulating money. From the earliest times, markets operated on the basis of credits and debits, and even the smallest sales to consumers took place on credit, which could be carried on the books of the merchant for years before being cleared. This from L.R. Ray, again, W.R.A.Y., Modern Money, from the book, What is Money? Routledge International Studies in Money and Banking, pages 43 and 44. So the history of money, as we know it today, begins in Babylon, or although he says, well, of course, ancient Babylon existed as Sumeria and as Akkad and as other names. There were two, actually, two actual Babylons. There was Babylon and Neo-Babylon. And the kingdom of Nimrod was also referred to as Babylon. So it could be it could all the way, go all the way back to Cain, for all we know. But let's continue. The same idea was later employed by bankers who held gold reserves on deposit for their customers. These customers were issued paper receipts for their gold. Because it was inconvenient for most people to lug the gold around for sales and purchases, they began to use the receipts as currency instead of the actual gold. Like that paper dollar in your wallet? It's supposed to represent real gold in storage someplace, but it no longer does that. The scam gets more and more sophisticated as time goes on. The possessor of the receipt could then take the receipt to the bank and collect his gold if he needed it. This was how our first paper money began to circulate as receipts for gold. This is the most precisely referred to as a banknote. A note is a promise to pay. Thus, these banknotes were promises to redeem that paper for whatever its stated value. The Babylonians were already doing this thousands of years ago with their clay tablets. Now, I have in my possession a 1933 Federal Reserve note which says upon it, this note is exchangeable for real money (laughs) to the bearer on demand. So if that paper bill is not real money, what is? In the 1933, gold was still 
the real money until FDR, that Jew president we had, took our gold from us and gave us paper instead. Let's continue. Concerning the religious nature of these clay tablets, we are informed, quote, of considerable comparative value are the masses of tablets containing rituals, hemorologies, whatever that means, liturgies, general incantations of the Shurpu and Maklu class, since they have many points of contact with the Pentateuch, though the differences are far more numerous, of course, a very large part of the religious literature is devoted to magic and divination. Astrology, liver divination, hepatoscopy, (laughs) do they cut the person's liver out (laughs) to examine it? Or is this a post-mortem divination? Lecanomancy, oil dropped into the water, I should try that. Oniromancy, divination by dreams. Omens from monstrous births. Oh my goodness. I've given birth to a monster, etc., etc. This vast literature is of great importance for the history of the culture since Akkadian magic and divination spread throughout the Near East as early as the second millennium BC and probably earlier because we know that Cain was the originator of the Sumerian Sumerian culture. This statement is from William F. Albright from the book Recent Discoveries in Bible Lands, Chapter 3. What Professor Albright is describing is witchcraft. And by the way, lending your money at interest is also witchcraft because very few people know how sinister and evil it really is. And it's a well-kept secret amongst the banksters and their employees. Babylon was also the source of many pagan religious concepts, which were imported by Herod the Great into the religion of Judea, which became known as Pharisaism. Herod even imported priests from Babylon to serve as high priests in Judea. Pharisaism is the true beginning of Judaism. And uh, my reading of Herod from Josephus gives the name of that Babylonian priest as Anenelus, A-N-A-E-L-U-S, Anenelus. And he was imported from Babylon by Herod, and that's probably the guy who started the money lending uh, in the vicinity of the temple. And those people are the ones that Yahshua drove out with his own whip. So that's a really interesting story. The fact is that true Israel is still combating this Babylonian religion today. The name of this religion is Judaism. It is quite amazing that virtually all of the Judeo-Christian theologians are aware of the fact that Judaism retains Babylonian witchcraft in the Talmud, especially in the Zohar and the Kabbalah, yet none of them ever bring these facts to light. The deep, dark secret of Judaism is that it is Satanism disguised as Mosaism. The pages of the Kabbalah and the Zohar are filled with the same spells, incantations, and magic as was practiced in ancient Babylon. That is because that's where the Kabbalah and the Zohar originated. The Babylonian Talmud, anybody? This religious rubbish has been preserved in the Talmud, and there are many rabbis who teach it and preach it. In fact, the pop singer Madonna is one of their most famous converts. And in my 
career in contracting, construction, and remodeling, I was privy to a lot of Jewish art hanging on the walls of many Jewish residences, and uh, a lot of them contained paintings of witchcraft items, painting of witches, and that sort of thing. So not all of them. I would say maybe 20% of the Jewish households that I worked in had a witchcraft symbolism in them. So it's not something that all Jews participate in, but a small percentage of them, and uh, those people take it seriously. So let's continue. Moses and the prophets were always combating the waywardness of the Israelites, who were always being tempted to engage in the Baal worship by false priests. These Babylonian traditions found their way into Judea during the reign of Herod the Great. It was the Pharisees who introduced these Babylonian traditions into Judea because Babylon was the source of these ideas which were grafted onto the Mosaic traditions by these same Pharisees. So we have Rabbi Stephen Wise, who was the chief rabbi of the United States in the 1930s, who admits that there was a change in character of the Hebrew religion upon the return from Babylon and that that change in religion from Mosaism to Judaism occurred at that time. Although, I think it occurred slightly after that because the record is very clear from the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that they restored the true Yahweh worship to Judah in those days, and they kicked out all the race-mixed half-breeds and the priests who were engaging in such activities, and they restored all of the Mosaic law, including uh, closing the city down for the Sabbath, which which city was had commerce going on 24-7. So they uh, destroyed those traditions and re- restored Mosaic, the Mosaic law in Judah. The Pharisees originated a little bit later, maybe one or two generations afterwards, probably influenced by the money-lending practices they had learned in, in Babylon and began money-lending operations among the Israelites, their own brethren, because most of these people, if not all of them, according to Scripture, are in fact pure-blooded Judahites. So, nevertheless, they, they learned a few bad things while in Babylon, while Ezra and Nehemiah tried to rid the population of those bad habits. But the Pharisees were a sect, a very secretive sect, who arose in that period called the intertestamental period between the last book of the Bible, Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, that these traditions arose during that time, and we know very little about the secretive activities of the Pharisees. All we know is that they were a very secretive sect who antagonized just about everybody except merchants, foreign merchants. They like to do business with foreign merchants. Let's continue. So, Moses and the prophets were always combating the waywardness of these Israelites. So, it was the Pharisees who introduced these Babylonian traditions into Judea because Babylon was the source of these ideas which were grafted onto the Mosaic traditions by these same Pharisees. The tradition of the elders. 
Part C, from barter to paper money. When did humans first arrive at the concept of money? Well, what is money? <laughs> what conditions spawned it? And how did it affect the ancient societies that created it? This is a quote. The quote is on the next page, so I don't want to lose my place. Until recently, researchers thought they had the answers. They believed money was born as coins along the coast of the Mediterranean in the 7th or 6th century B.C., a product of the civilization that later gave the world the, Panth- the Parthenon, Plato, and Aristotle. Oh, no, no, no. It was invented much before them, much before the Greeks. But few see the matter so simply now. With evidence gleaned from such disparate sources as ancient temple paintings, clay tablets, and buried hordes of uncoined metals, researchers have revealed far more ancient money. Silver scraps and bits of gold, massive rings and gleaming ingots. Just how complex life grew in these early metropolises can be glimpsed in the world's oldest accounting records. 8,162 tiny clay tokens excavated from the floors of village houses and city temples across the Near East and studied in detail by Denise Schmant Besserat, an archaeologist at the University of Texas at Austin, the tokens served first as counters and perhaps later as promissory notes given to temple tax collectors before the first writing appeared. So we're talking prehistory, folks. So gold and silver were valued as money way back when. By classifying the disparate shapes and markings on the tokens into types and comparing these with the earliest known written symbols, Schmant Besserat discovered that each token represented a specified quantity of a particular commodity. And she noticed an intriguing difference between village tokens and city tokens. In the small communities dating from before the rise of cities, Mesopotamians regularly employed just five token types, representing different amounts of three main goods. Human labor, grain, and livestock, like goats and sheep. So these tokens represented these three main commodities. Now I wonder, well, since slave labor was free, they wouldn't represent manual labor by freemen. So again, these three categories are human labor, grain, and livestock. But in the cities, they began churning out a multitude of new types, regularly employing 16 in all, with dozens of subcategories representing everything from honey, sheep's milk, and trust ducks. A trust duck. Two, wool, cloth, rope, garments, mats, beds, perfume, and metals. Quote, it's no longer just farm goods, says Schmant Besserat. There are also finished products, manufactured goods, furniture, bread, and textiles. So the original tokens in the cities were valued for the type of commodity they represented. So maybe one token is for a dresser with three or four drawers. So your token what would represent that. So like poker chips. And you know, when you go gambling, you know, your poker chip, you can buy them in different denominations, so you can bet high or low with your poker chips. 
But it's also like the money changers in the temple in Yahshua's time, they're half shekel. They were able to make the value of the half shekel fluctuate. So if they needed more money, they could raise the price like bankers do today. They, they can... They can raise the price or lower the price depending on how much they, they put into circulation. And thus, the, the price of the half shekel would go up, making the purchase you you get, the, the dove or the goat or whatever sacrificial animal or oblation you purchase from them, make, a, make it go up in value if they choose to. They can, In other words, they can gouge the public. Continuing. So, this is really an interesting way in which these tokens representing coins came into being. So faced with this new profession, says Wyrick, W-Y-R-I-C-K, no one would have had an easy time bartering, even for something as simple as a pair of sandals. Quote, if there were a thousand different goods being traded up and down the street, People could set the price in a thousand different ways because in a barter economy, each good is priced in terms of all other goods. So one pair of sandals equals 10 dates, equals one quart of wheat, equals two quarts of bitumen, and so on. Which is the best price? It's so complex that people don't know if they are getting a good deal. For the first time in history, we've got a large number of goods. And for the first time, we have so many prices that it overwhelms the human mind. Yeah, just like the stock market. People needed some standard way of stating value. In Mesopotamia, silver, a prized ornamental material, became that standard. Supplies didn't vary much from year to year, so its value remained constant, which made it an ideal measuring rod for calculating the value of other things. Thus, the biblical injunction of not using false weights and measures. But what do you think inflation is? Inflation is spending money, valueless paper into circulation to take the place of actual promissory notes. So the bankers are really good at that trick. So Mesopotamians were quick to see the advantage recording the prices of everything from timber to barley and silver by weight in shekels. So this is where the shekel comes from. And just as our Constitution specifies a weight of silver as a dollar, not a piece of paper, nothing that has intrinsic value of a particular value, like 30 cents or 50 cents, but a dollar is defined as a particular weight of silver I think it's 375.25 grains of silver is what a dollar really is. So it's a, it's a coin. It's a silver coin. So let's continue. One shekel equaled one-third of an ounce or just a little more than the weight of three pennies. A slave, for example, cost between 10 and 20 shekels of silver. A month of a freeman's labor was worth one shekel. A quart of barley went for three hundredths of a shekel. Best of all, silver was portable. Quote, you can't carry a shekel of barley on your ass. <laughs> Unquote. Comments Marvin Powell, referring to the animal, of course. Well, you could carry it on your hip, right? In your, in your bag. In your pouch. And with a silver standard, kings could attach a price to infractions of the law. In the codes of the city, 
F, F, sorry, Esh Nuna, never heard of that city before, Esh Nuna, E-S-H-N-U-N-N-A, which date to around 2000 B.C., a man who bit another man's nose, <laughs> they must have had big noses in those days, would be fined 60 shekels of silver. Whoa! I guess that's where the expression paying through the nose comes from. One who slapped another in the face paid 10. How about biting somebody's ear off in the boxing ring? Still, now another quote by Powell. People were constantly falling into debt, says Powell. Huh, has anything changed? We find reference to this in letters where people are writing to one another about someone in the household who has been seized, i.e. arrested and enslaved, for securing a debt. To remedy this disastrous financial affair, King Hammurabi decreed in the 18th century B.C. that none of his subjects could be enslaved for more than three years for failing to repay a debt. Other Mesopotamian rulers, alarmed at the financial chaos in the cities, tried legislating moratoriums on all outstanding bills. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah, of course, politicians use these tricks even today, like the moratorium on uh, mortgage payments, moratorium on rent payments, moratorium on this and that. Nothing works because the money supply is still as dishonest as the night is dark. Continuing, while the cities of Mesopotamia were the first to conceive of money, others in the ancient Near East soon took up the torch as civilization after civilization rose to glory along the coasts of the eastern Mediterranean from Egypt to Syria. Their their citizens began abandoning the old ways of pure barter, adopting local standards of value, often silver by weight. They began buying and selling with their own local versions of commodity monies. Linen, perfume, wine, olive oil, wheat, barley, precious metals, things that could be easily divided into smaller portions and that resisted decay. So the source from this is Discover Magazine, 1998, The Cradle of Cash. So we can see that the ideal form of money is a non-perishable commodity, which is valued just about everywhere. Boy, people love gold and silver, don't they? So we can see that the <laughs> gold and silver have historically been such a commodity. But the merchants of Babylon have always tried to replace gold and silver with their own form of money. It began with the clay tablets of ancient Babylon, and it takes the form of ledger entries today. Something as immaterial as a computer blip counts as money today. Don't you know we're getting ready to have central bank Digital currency, CBDC, central bank digital currency, which they can create at will. They've already been doing that. The dollar is just a blip on a computer screen. And they loan these blips out to their branch banks. I'm talking about the Federal Reserve System. And these blips, the branch banks lend out to private individuals or to other banks And not a single piece of money has exchanged hands by anybody. But when you go to get a loan from your banker, he will hand you a check in which numbers are written. 
not representing anything of value in the world except those computer blips that the check was written on. So you can see the scam the bankers are getting away with is money, constant money creation. And this is why we have the fiat explosion since, well, since President Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard vis-a-vis petroleum. And the Arabs really got angry when he did that. And we had a petroleum shortage for quite a while because the Arabs wanted their gold because they were promised that if they take Federal Reserve notes from us, they could exchange those Federal Reserve notes for gold. But as the Federal Reserve notes were being inflated constantly and their value was less and less, they started demanding their gold because the gold retained its value, the paper money didn't. So, so let's continue. So we see from this, we can see that the progression toward promissory notes came in this order. One, barter. Two, clay tablets. Three, promissory notes. And in the case of items two and three, promissory notes and clay tablets, fraudulent notes were circulated as real notes. It is these fraudulent notes that are the basis of the fractional reserve banking system. Heading number two. Babylon destroyed... The Babylonian moneylenders go underground. Now we're talking about ancient Babylon, the third beast of the book of Revelation. Babylonian moneylending practices incorporated into Judaism. Subheading. A. The money changers of the New Testament. Students of the Bible are aware of the connection between the Jerusalem temple and the city of Tyre. Hiram, king of Tyre, sent cedars of Lebanon, cypress logs, and artisans to Jerusalem to help King Solomon build the first temple, 1 Kings 5, 2 Chronicles 2. However, most people may not be aware that there is a connection between the city of Tyre and the second temple in Jerusalem, the Tyrian Shekel. Every year, a Jewish man, 20 years older, old and older, paid a voluntary half-shekel temple tax to the Jerusalem temple. This is a quotation, so obviously we're talking here about a Judahite person. This tax, instituted by Moses, Exodus 30, 11 through 16, was paid in either the Tyrian shekel for himself and another person, or half-shekel for only himself during the second temple period. And this is from the Babylonian Talmud as well, Mishnah Bekhoroth 8.7, Babylonian Talmud, Kedushin 11a. The shekel with the laureate head of Melkarth Heracles, a pagan deity, on the obverse of an eagle, a graven image, on the reverse, averaged 14.2 grams in weight and contained at least 94% silver. These coins were minted entire between 126 and 125 B.C. and 19 and 18 B.C. After the Roman government closed the Tyre Mint, these coins continued to be minted at an unknown mint, probably in or near Jerusalem, from 18 to 17 B.C. until 69 A.D. Now who was minting them at this time? The author continues, the Jewish coin makers, and probably is corrected, by this point in time, they were Edomite Jews, not Judahites, who were, had gained control of the minting. 
Okay, these coins continue to be minted at an unknown mint, probably in or near Jerusalem, from uh, up until A.D. 6970. That was, of course, the year in which the temple was destroyed by the Romans. Yet the rabbis declared that the Tyrian shekels were the only legal currency that was acceptable in the temple. So we see that by this time, by the days of Yahshua Messiah, the rabbis of Judaism, not yet known as Judaism, but as the tradition of the elders, had taken control of the currency of, of the temple. And this is Hendon, 2001, pages 420 through 29. Anyway, the rabbis decided that the commandment to give the half-shekel temple tax with its proper weight and purity, was more important than the prohibition of who or what image was on the coin. <laughs> okay, This is probably also the influence of Herod, who put up all kinds of images and statues to which the Judahites continually protested against, to no avail, because the Roman army backed up Herod almost in every single instance of whatever he wanted to do. So, Obviously, when he started importing Babylonian priests and Babylonian money into Jerusalem, the Babylonian system began to increase. Here's the heading of a Tyrian shekel minted in 116 to 115 BC. The obverse, which is the front, laureate head of Melkarth Heracles, and the reverse, an eagle. It is very important to note that there is no record of money changes in the temple until the Herodians took the power in the kingdom of Judah. There is no such group of money changes mentioned in the Old Testament. It was these Herodian money changers that Jesus drove out of the temple with his handmade whip. Section B, principle of common or public circulation versus hoarding acceptance. As the government collects revenues, it also spends the money back into circulation for goods and services. If the government has a surplus, taxes should decline. If there is a deficit, taxes necessarily increase. The government could accept any kind of commodity in payment of taxes. It was the Jew bankers who insisted on being, in the days of the American Civil War, who insisted on being paid in gold, thus depriving the economy of gold and silver coins. Fortunately, at that time, gold was uh, silver was being mined in the western part of the country day and night, so there was a constant flow of silver coins to the government, which was very good. Anyway, very few people understand the difference between the economic principles of redeemability and acceptance. Redeemability is the value of the promissory note. The note can be redeemed for the redemption value. Indeed, that is what makes the note valuable. The note is a promise to pay the bearer the actual quantity of a hard asset that is stipulated by the note. Well, for, for example, you can write a check to somebody for $100, or, or you can write to somebody uh, a check for one sheep. So when that sheep is delivered to you, the promissory note has been, oh, what's the legal term? Uh, paid is not the right term, but the debt has been canceled. In other words, the debt has been canceled, and the note is no longer valuable. However, for paper money and gold and silver, 
they never lose their value because they're hard assets that everybody values. That's what money should be. But they always substitute paper in place of hard assets. Okay, redeemability is the value of the promissory note. The note can be redeemed for the redemption value. Indeed, that is what makes the note valuable. The note is a promise to pay the bearer the actual quantity of hard asset that is stipulated by the note. This is why redeemable currency states, quote, payable to the bearer on demand, unquote. In contrast, irredeemable paper currency is nothing but paper containing numbers without any promise to pay. It is also known as fiat money. The bane of fiat money is inflation. It is not possible to inflate redeemable currency without risking the stability of the bank, as the bank must keep on hand the very assets that the redeemable currency demands. All of history's hyperinflations have occurred while fiat money was the reigning currency. Extinguishing the debt. Thank you, Jeffrey. Well, what have we got today, folks? Trillions and trillions and trillions of Biden notes. Of course, they're, they're Jew debt money being spent into circulation to pay for the welfare state, to pay the for the plastic debit cards given to illegal aliens that cross into our country for all sorts of expenditures that the federal government, the, the so-called democracy that we have, based in Washington, D.C., which is no democracy, it's a mobocracy run by banksters. And the politicians, mostly of the Democratic Party, are the ones who administer this welfare mob mobocracy based on fiat money. And as long as this fiat money has value somewhere, this system will continue. However, this system is showing signs of collapsing as more and more countries and corporations and businesses reject Federal Reserve notes. And the more the, how should I put it? Well, the economy, I was looking for a better word, the more the potential users of the, this currency reject it, the less value it has, the, the more other people start rejecting it, and so that's why gold and silver have been going up in price. But somehow the, Rock, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds are manipulating the price. But I think the, what they're doing is instead of delivering the gold, even though many owners of notes that say pay to the bearer on demand so many ounces of gold, what the Rothschilds, there you go, what the Rothschilds do instead is here, we'll give you another note that's even worth more gold, right? So hedging the bet for the future, right? And so this is the way it works. It's a kind of a, 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 the reverse of you know, giving, rolling your debt over, ro rolling your mortgage debt over. So they roll over the value of your investment in gold. Say, so, okay, don't we won't deliver the gold to you, but now what we'll do, we will give you is fiat fiat certificates that uh, are, are way more valuable than what you used to have, and so you just exchange one piece of low low value paper 
for a piece of higher value paper until sooner or later, people are going to have to start demanding their gold. That's how it's going to work, folks. They're going to start demanding their gold. And when people start demanding delivery, then all hell will break loose. Well, we'll see if the Rothschilds, how long they can fend off this situation. And in my opinion, this is the very reason for the CBDC, the Central Bank Digital Currency, because once that's in place, there's no longer any promissory notes. Whether anybody can use their CBDCs to buy stocks in the stock market, I mean, that would be extremely risky because what happens if you drop your cell phone in the toilet? <laughs> you can't access your funds, right? Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Or your your power goes out and you can't access your funds. You have to have some kind of digital device to transfer funds because they're going to close down the windows at the banks. At least that's what they're telling us. Whether that will actually happen, I doubt, because... For every tyranny that bans anything, there's always an underground economy for whatever is banned. So maybe the young people who have been weaned on plastic and cell phones and computers, maybe for them, they'll go totally digital and boy, will they have a price to pay when the power goes out. The rest of us old people who know better we'll have stashed away a certain amount of gold and silver and commodities like freeze-dried food, right? For when the great starvation happens. This is my warning to you, folks. You should do that in the meantime. I know the Bible prophesies that people will throw their coins and money into the streets because it will totally lose value. But in the meantime... You need to keep things of value in order to buy food. And if you're a cocaine addict, boy, are you in trouble. If you're a cigarette addict, you may have a hard time. The cigarettes may cost $10 a piece in the very near future. Okay, so fiat money is the bane of all banking industry. It always destroys the system that it started with. So that must be borne in mind. Every single country that has fallen to hyperinflation, such as the Weimar Republic, such as France, many other countries, South Amer- several South American countries, I think Italy went through one of those. Certain, certain countries in Africa have gone through hyperinflations. They have literally destroyed their economy thereby. So that could happen, and it is happening to the Federal Reserve now as we speak, as it is finally beginning to lose its value. And even though it's a confidence racket, any confidence racket is based on the people's confidence in accepting this piece of paper in exchange to extinguish their debt, right? And uh, if they stop having that confidence, the game's over, folks. It's just about over. And to restate this very important sentence, all of history's hyperinflations have occurred while fiat money was the reigning currency. And that's what we have today. Even the other denominations of European currency, you name it, they're all hyperinflating their currencies pretty much at the same rate. So, but 
They're all losing value vis-a-vis gold and silver, all of them. Section C, the half shekel, redeemability versus acceptability. Since the Israelites of the Bible were not engaged in the art of money changing, this practice has to be introduced from elsewhere. The most likely source of this practice was the Edomites, whom Herod brought in from Idumea and Babylon. Thus, Babylonian money-changing practices were introduced into Judah. By legally mandating only the half-shekel for temple services, the temple money-changers forced the Judean people to acquire these coins for payment. But if the money-changers hoarded the half-shekel, its availability decreased. The more the money-changers hoarded the half-shekel, the more difficult it was to obtain. In this way, the money-changers could make the half-shekel scarce. In this way, the people were forced... have to turn the page here, sorry. ...were forced to exchange their goods for an artificially scarce commodity. Namely, there's your false weights and measures again, folks. In one year, a sheep could be exchanged for a shekel. A few years later, it would take two sheep to obtain a half shekel. As time went on, the half shekel became increasingly difficult to obtain, just like your poker chips in Las Vegas. You know, ten years ago, you're, you could get a, a, a poker chip for a dollar. Now it costs $10, right? That's inflation for you. The half shekel was effectively being taken out of circulation, but it was still required as payment for temple sacrifices. Now, this was not instituted by Judahites. This was instituted by Edomites and Babylonians. A modern parallel would be buying tokens for a slot machine. The gambling house can have slot machines that work on dollar coins or quarters. But since the value of circulating money fluctuates, and because different customers come in with different kinds of money, the gambling house provides tokens, which are sold for the exclusive use of the slot machines. In this way, the gambling house can increase the price of the tokens if the currency is being inflated, thus maintaining their high level of profit. By legally mandating the acceptability rule and by artificially restricting the number of these coins in circulation, the money changers of the temple were able to manipulate the currency so that they, and not the government, could regulate the value of the half shekel. So we've had periods in history where Either the government inflates the currency or the bankers inflate the currency. It doesn't matter who does it. The result is always the same. But typically, it's the bankers who run the show behind the scenes. You know, that's what the Wizard of Oz was all about. You know, the guy behind the curtain pulling the strings or those, in this case, pulling the levers, manipulating the economy, the wizard... Yeah, he's a Rothschild. Excerpted from chapter 12 of the book, Knowledge Without Wisdom. Let me issue and control a nation's money, and I care not who writes the laws. So said Amschel Meyer Rothschild. Whomever control, whomsoever controls the volume of money in any country is absolute master of all industry and commerce and when you realize that the entire system is very easily controlled one way or another by a few powerful men at the top, you will not have to be told how periods of inflation and depression originate, unquote, 
President James Garfield, 1881, spoken only two weeks before his assassination. Unfortunately, within a few weeks of slamming the money changes with the above statement, President James Garfield, 1831 to 1881, was assassinated. Such was the displeasure of the secretive money changers, the elite bankers of the world. Garfield paid for this indiscretion with his life. Others who came before and after him would also. Again, this is still from the book, Knowledge Without Wisdom. To clearly discover the secret identity of these money changers to whom President Garfield referred, we need to revisit our history. The beginnings of usury originated in 200 B.C. Two early, well, we've documented it began earlier, but uh, the, the Jews migrated <laughs> to Rome, right? The, the Judeans were already in Rome as well as the Judahites. Two early Roman emperors lost their lives setting about to reform usury laws by limiting land ownership to 500 acres and freeing up the coinage of that era. In 48 BC, Julius Caesar took back the power to coin money and made it available to everyone. So he was assassinated because he gave the power to coin money back to the public? Huh. And again, it's uh, these assassinations are never explained. They're never given any connection to the money system and who's in charge of it. But we can see here the banksters in disguise or the banksters disguised as what? As uh, honest citizens, <laughs> businessmen, who are always the string pullers and always the assassins. He was assassinated for his trouble. The common people lost their homes and wealth as we in the 21st century are about to. In the time of Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, the Sanhedrin of the Jewish temple controlled their flock through the temple taxes represented by the payment of the half shekel. There are many historians of this era who estimate that the Sanhedrin temple coffers contained in excess of the equivalent of $10 million in half shekels. The Jewish people, and I would put uh, uh, phrase it as the Ju- Judean people, because it was a mixed multitude in those days, oppressed t- and totally controlled by Sanhedrin temple officials, were simply enslaved to the dogma of this religion and its leaders. So where did this religion of money lending come from? It's certainly not in the Mosaic Law. It was never practiced by the Israelites of the Old Testament times. It was developed in the intertestamental period between the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew. And there's very little information about it. I searched really hard. When did the Pharisees, or when were they influenced by money changers from Babylon? That's, that is the question I have in my mind. Maybe I'll find out before I actually turn this script into a video. Anyway, as we have seen, Jesus dared to confront and expose this ungodly enslavement of Israel, well said, and suffered what can only be described as an assassin. Yeah, and we told you who that assassin is, the leader of the pack, Caiaphas. In the intervening centuries, the money changers, practicing the ancient art of usury, experienced an ebb and flow as generation after generation of monarchical and political leaders eradicated this enslaving practice 
it eradicated the banksters as well. No sooner was the evil rooted out than it would reappear under a different guise. Usury would always reappear as the greed and power lust of the strong overshadowed the weak. In the Middle Ages, the Vatican forbade the charging of interest on loans. Quote, usury based on the concept that followed the teachings of Aristotle and St. Thomas Aquinas, unquote, declaring that the purpose of money was to serve the members of society and to facilitate the exchanges of goods needed to lead a virtuous life. So the Catholic Church actually did something good? Anyway, the money changers used interest on loans to conduct usury. Until recently, all religionists condemned fraud and oppression through the enslavement by these usury techniques. As the money changers became more adept during the ensuing epochs of their history, they became more bold in their manipulations. And so it was seen that the concept of fractional reserve lending sprang up. This widespread fraud has always created the circumstances for widespread poverty and the reduction of the value of money. The modern era's description of the business cycle is nothing more than the result of the boom and bust response to the fractional reserve lending policies of all banks worldwide. They have simply learned from the past. Okay? And Muammar Gaddafi was executed because he went away from the Rothschild fractional reserve banking system and issued his own, what's the name of his country? (laughs) Uh, Libya. His own Libyan currency backed by gold and with a lot of gold coins as I understand it. So anybody who bucks the Jewish money lending system will die. You can take that statement to the bank. Section 3, the Bank of England, the Jewish money lenders in Christian Europe. Holland, (laughs) historyforkids.org, religion, Jews, Middle Ages, HTM, Oliver Cromwell, financed by Dutch Jews. According to Captain A.M. Ramsey in his book, The Nameless War, Oliver Cromwell, back in the 17th century, became a traitor when he acted as a paid agent of Edomite Jews who co-conspired with him to usurp the throne of England out from under King Charles II. I think this, I'm quoting here, I think he should be saying Charles I. Charles II was complicit with the bank. Anyway, these so-called Jews were of the same ilk banished from England by King Edward back in the late 13th century. They were not of the bloodline of Jacob Israel, but were in fact descendants of Esau Edom, as described in Genesis chapter 28. They were impostors who claimed to be of the house of Israel and are referred to in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9 as Jews, which say they are Jews of the tribe of Judah and are not, but do lie. And the lie continues up to this present day. Okay, I didn't realize that Captain Ramsey was identity. (laughs) Anyway, evidently Cromwell believed their lies and accepted bribe money when he readmitted them in 1657. Soon, the economy of England began to suffer from the effects of Jewish usury, known as the thievery of fractional reserve banking. Since that fateful day, the British people have slowly been bled of all their wealth and their vast empire and have been forced to go into numerous wars. 
I mean numerous wars, all at Jewish insistence. The Opium Wars in India and China, our American Revolution, the French and Indian, every, every war that Britain has engaged in in the modern era has been instigated by Jewish moneylenders, primarily the Rothschilds, but other Jewish bankers as well. Okay, from Oliver Cromwell and the beheading of King Charles I in 1649, financed by the Jews. Jewish bankers from Amsterdam, led by the Jewish financier and army contractor of Cromwell's new model army, Fernandes Carvajal, and assisted by Portuguese ambassador de Souza, a Murano, or secret Jew, saw an opportunity to exploit in the civil unrest led by Oliver Cromwell in 1643. A stable Christian society of ancient traditions binding the monarchy, church, state, nobles, and people into one solemn bond was disrupted by Calvin's Protestant uprising. The Jews of Amsterdam, and we teach, and Chris Pete agrees in London that Calvin's real name was Cohen, Calvin in French, and he was in fact a Jew. The Jews of Amsterdam exploited the civil unrest and made their move. They contacted Oliver Cromwell in a series of letters, which we will quote. Cromwell to Ebenezer Pratt of the Mulheim Synagogue in Amsterdam, 16th June, 1647, quote, in return for financial support, will advocate admission of Jews to England. This, however, impossible while Charles living. Charles cannot be executed without trial, adequate grounds for which do not at present exist. Therefore, advise that Charles be assassinated, but will have nothing to do with arrangements for procuring an assassination, or an assassin, though willing to help in his escape, unquote. What a letter. Next, to Oliver Cromwell from Ebenezer Pratt, 12th July, 1647. Will grant financial aid as soon as Charles removed and Jews admitted. Assassination too dangerous. Charles shall be given opportunity to escape. His recapture will make trial and execution impossible. The support will be liberal, but useless to discuss terms until trial commences. So, they won't make any payments until until he's out of the way? I would, I would, if I were the assassin, I would demand the money up front, right? Let's continue. Cromwell had carried out the orders of the Jewish financiers and beheaded, yes, Cromwell and his Jewish sponsors must face Christ, King Charles I, on January 30th, 1649. Beginning in 1655, Cromwell, through his alliance with the Jewish bankers of Amsterdam, and specifically with Manasseh ben Israel, and his brother-in-law, David Abravanel Dormido, initiated the resettlement of the Jews in England. Section B. Are you beginning to smell how history is really done, folks? <laughs> Court Jews. Jews get their central bank of England. William Stadtholder, a Dutch army careerist. This is a quote from the Jewish Encyclopedia. William Stadtholder, a Dutch army careerist, was a handsome chap with money problems. The Jews saw another opportunity and through their influence arranged for William's elevation to captain general of the Dutch forces. 
The next step up the ladder for William was his elevation by the Jews to the aristocratic title of William, Prince of Orange. So, William was a Jew puppet all along. How about that? The Jews then arranged a meeting between William and Mary, the eldest daughter of the Duke of York. The Duke was only one place removed from becoming King of England in 1677. Oh, sorry. In 1677, Princess Mary of England married Prince William of Orange. To place William upon the throne of England, it was necessary to get rid of both Charles II and the Duke of York, who was slated to become James II of the Stuarts. It is important to note that none of the Stuarts would grant charter for an English national bank. That is why murder, civil war, and religious conflicts plagued their raids by the Jewish bankers. In 1685, this is the Jewish encyclopedia, folks. <laughs> okay. All right, let's continue. In 1685, King Charles II died, and the Duke of York became King James II of England. In 1688, the Jews ordered Prince William of Orange to land in England at Torbay. Because of an ongoing campaign of la infamy against King James II, contrived by the Jews, he abdicated and fled to France. William of Orange and Mary were proclaimed king and queen of England. The new king, William III, soon got England involved in costly wars against Catholic France, which put England deep into debt. Here was the Jewish banker's chance to collect. So King William, under orders from the elders of Zion in Amsterdam, persuaded the British Treasury to borrow 1.25 million pounds sterling from the Jewish bankers who had helped them to the throne. Since the state's debts had risen dramatically, the government had no choice but to accept. But there were conditions attached. The names of the lenders were to be kept secret and that they be granted a charter to establish a central bank of England which, of course, is a private bank owned by Jews. It always has been. Parliament accepted, and the Jewish bankers sunk their tentacles into Great Britain. Meyer Amschel Bauer opened a money-lending business on Judenstrasse, Jew Street, in Frankfurt, Germany, in 1750, and changed his name to Rothschild. Meyer Rothschild had five sons. The smartest of his five sons, Nathan, was sent to London to establish a bank in 1806. Much of the initial funding for the new bank was tapped from the British East India Company, which Meyer Rothschild had significant control of. Meyer Rothschild would place his other four sons in Frankfurt, Paris, Naples, and Vienna. In 1814, Nathaniel Rothschild saw an opportunity in the Battle of Waterloo, Early in the battle, Napoleon appeared to be winning, and the first military report to London communicated that fact. But the tide turned in favor of Wellington. A courier of Nathan Rothschild brought the news to him in London on June 20th. This was 24 hours before Wellington's courier arrived in London with the news of Wellington's victory. Seeing this fortuitous event, Nathan Rothschild began spreading the rumor that Britain was defeated. With everyone believing that Wellington was defeated, Nathan Rothschild began to sell all of his stock in the English stock market. Everyone panicked and also began selling and causing stocks to plummet to practically nothing. 
At the last minute, Nathan Rothschild began buying up the stocks at rock-bottom prices. This gave the Rothschild family complete control of the British economy, now the financial center of the world, and forced England to set up a revamped Bank of England with Nathan Rothschild in control. Again, I repeat, this is from the Jewish Encyclopedia. I guess they cannot help bragging. A private financial corporation exists today in England known as the City. It is also known as the Jewish Vatican, <laughs> located in the heart of Greater London. A committee of 12 men rule the Jewish Vatican. They are known as the Crown. The city and its rulers, the Crown, are not subject to the Parliament. They are a sovereign state within a sovereign state, as is the Vatican in Italy and as is Washington, District of Corruption, right here in America. These are the three, oh, frogs. The three frogs of the book of Revelation that have their own power. They're states within states, and they do not answer to anybody. Continuing, the city is the financial hub of the world. It is here that the Rothschilds have their base of operations and their centrality of control. That, that central bank of England controlled by the Rothschilds is located in the city. All major banks have their main offices in the city. 385 foreign banks are located in the city. 70 banks from the United States are located in the city. The London Stock Exchange is located in the city. Lloyd's of London is located in the city. The Baltic Exchange shipping contracts is located in the city. Fleet Street newspapers and publishing is located in the city. The London Metal Exchange is located in the city. The London Commodity Exchange trading rubber, wool, sugar, coffee is located in the city. That's the equivalent of the Chicago uh, Commodities Exchange. Every year, a Lord Mayor is elected as monarch of the city. The British Parliament does not make a move without consulting the Lord Mayor of the city. For here in the heart of London are grouped together Britain's financial institutions dominated by the Rothschild-controlled Central Bank of England. The Rothschilds have traditionally chosen the Lord Mayor since 1820. Who is the present-day Lord Mayor of the city? Only the Rothschilds know for sure. <laughs> okay. Are you getting the picture, folks? Do the money changers rule the world? Or do they rule the world? C, the Bank of England, founded in 1694. Oh, by the way, uh, in addition to the fact that Washington, D.C. is just such an independent city, not answering to the U.S. Constitution or to the American people, of course, they are the subject of you know that book that turned into a movie uh, about... Uh, not Alice in Wonderland, I, I spoke of it earlier, but uh, Wizard of Oz, where where Dorothy is just one of those public people, right? She symbolizes the American people who is all confused about how government works. Does she figure out at the end of that movie that the money changers rule the society? I don't think so. But that's what that story is all about. Anyway, Bank of England founded in 1694. In the bank's own words, 
The Bank of England was founded in 1694 to act as the government's banker and debt manager. Since then, its role has developed and evolved, centered on the management of the nation's currency and its position at the center of the UK's financial system. The history of the bank is naturally one of interest, well, yeah, yeah, lots of interest, but also of continuing relevance to the bank today. Events and circumstances over the past 300 years or so have shaped traditions as well as the expertise of the bank, which are relevant to its reputation and effectiveness as a central bank in the early years of the 21st century. Well, it drove Britain into the ground with constant wars and and debt usury. At the same time, much of the history, uh, as the Bible says, the Jews will wear out the saints. At the same time, much of the history of the bank runs parallel to the economic and financial history and often the political history of the United Kingdom more generally. Well, everything in this statement is absolutely true. But it does not indicate at all the significance of the bank and its absolute control of the British economy and responsibility for everything that happens economically, militarily, and politically in Great Britain. Okay, so Revelation 17 and 18. Ancient Mystery Babylon. Ancient Mystery Babylon. Let's see, we have about 14 minutes left. And as I have related elsewhere, during the Napoleonic Wars, the Jews purchased their freedom from the German ghettos by paying off Napoleon's army. Napoleon needed money, and so the Jews of Frankfurt and other Jewish communities in Germany who were kept in these ghettos to prevent them from exploiting the German people these, they wanted to be citizens of Germany, you know, demanding to be citizens just, just because they happened to reside in these ghettos. Well, first of all, the Germans had every right to deprive them of citizenship because they had nothing to do with the creation of the German polity. And they were antichrists. And they knew that if these Jews were allowed to run free, they would certainly exploit the German people, get them all in debt, get the government in debt, etc., etc., just as Americans here in America assumed the worst when Jews were allowed to come here, and they were right about that as well. So that history does repeat itself, folks. And will we ever learn? Will we ever learn to not let the Jews into our countries? They've only been expelled over a thousand times. The Jews agreed to about 105 of these expulsions. And they blame us, Christians. It's our fault that they resorted to banking. No, it isn't. They've been bankers forever, right? They didn't want to work. They didn't want to be farmers. They didn't want to be carpenters and bricklayers. They just wanted to sit around and collect money and give orders to kings and queens. That was a major development during the Napoleonic Wars, which is totally disregarded by virtually all historians. So, and we also know the Jews ran the slave trade. 
Swamp Fox says, Jews loaned George Washington money for a revolution in return for allowing them to come here. I think that's that's partially true. Uh, it, but even before Washington, the Jews of Pennsylvania inveigled their way in. Uh, who was uh, who was the original governor of Pennsylvania? Not William Penn. There was somebody else. It may have been William Penn. But he tried to keep the Jews out of Pennsylvania. But the fact is that the whole operation of uh, populating the colonies was financed by the British West Indies Corporation, which was run by Jews. So there was no way the governor of Pennsylvania could prevent Jews from coming into Pennsylvania. So these are uh, <laughs> these are the facts of history that are not in any textbooks. Okay, so we see that uh, as the American colonies grew, they they were complaining about the oppression of the British Empire and King George III, but very little is ever said about the fact that people like Benjamin Franklin and others complained about the Bank of England as well. And Benjamin Franklin even stated that the real reason for the American Revolution was the fact that the Bank of England would not allow the colonists to have their own money. Yeah, we can't have an economy without Jewish banksters, right? <laughs> that, is a, that has been their argument. But of course, Abraham Lincoln proved them wrong, and so did Adolf Hitler prove them wrong. In fact, Germany was the first nation of its own accord to get out of the Great Depression in the 1930s when Hitler took power over over the economy and kicked out the Jew banksters, an act for which he had to be punished. But I also believe they, they wanted another war because they failed to establish that uh, dirty little state called Israel the first for during the First World War, so they needed to have a Second World War to get their filthy, grubby hands on Palestine. And I think they used Hitler for that purpose, whether he was aware of it or not. And uh, But the, the book, The Transfer Agreement, shows without, without any denial that the Zionists used the Nazi regime to make life uncomfortable for Jews so that they would go to Palestine. And they were paid, I don't remember the exact amount, but I think it was one or 200, I was going to say shekels, one or 200 marks per Jew to the Nazi regime to ship them to Palestine. So that's a really good deal. If you want, hey, we want to get rid of them. You pay them, you pay their for you pay their fare and give us a fee for our trouble. What a deal! Such a deal. But nobody in the academic history books says a word about this at all. And of course, you know, they tried to assassinate Andrew Jackson because Andrew Jackson wanted to get rid of the Second Bank of the United States. He declined to renew its charter. They tried to assassinate him. And the assassin only failed because his two pistols, had uh, the, the gunpowder in those pistols had gotten damp and they didn't fire. And we talked about Benjamin Harrison. 
being assassinated for criticizing the bank. Abraham Lincoln assassinated for cheating the bank out of their usury. Uh, Certainly, McKinley was assassinated by them. Huey Long was assassinated by them. Joe McCarthy was assassinated by them. JFK was assassinated by them. Congressman Louis T. McFadden, assassinated by them. He was anti-bank in the 1920s. Yet none of this history is revealed to the American people. Because why? Because the Jews control the press. 100% of it. And any, any, I, I don't even want, want to call them journalists, but any employee of these, of these mass media corporations who doesn't toe the Jewish line gets fired or worse. And here's a statement by Otto von Bismarck regard to the American Civil War. I fear the Jewish banks with craftiness and tortuous tricks will entirely control the exuberant riches of America and use it to systematically corrupt modern civilization. The Jews will not hesitate to plunge the whole of Christendom into wars and chaos that the earth should become their inheritance, unquote, Otto von Bismarck. The Shylocks of Wall Street. (laughs) This is a quotation from William Shakespeare, the Merchant of Venice. Not on the leather of your soul you should sharpen that knife, but on the harder one of your heart, merciless Jew, there is none other metal, nor even the executioner's axe, which is less sharp and keen compared to your hatred. Unquote. There were days when people understood how evil the Jews really are. Not were, are. Okay, with uh, oh, only about five minutes left. A few more quotations here. If, from the more wretched parts of the old world, we look at those which are in an advanced stage of improvement, we still find the greedy hand of government thrusting itself into every corner and crevice of industry and grasping the spoil of the multitude. Invention is continually exercised to furnish new pretenses for revenues and taxation. It watches prosperity as its prey and permits none to escape without tribute. Unquote. Thomas Paine, The Rights of Man, 1791. Oh, how ignorant we have become in the last 200 years. And even Alexander Hamilton said, quote, It is evident from the state of the country, from the habits of the people, from the experience we have had on the point itself, that it is impracticable to raise any very considerable sums by direct taxation, unquote. Well, let the bankers do the collecting then. Hire the tax farmers. This is Federalist Paper Number 12, 1787. And I think we have time for maybe one more. It should be your care, therefore, and mine to elevate the minds of our children and exalt their courage, to accelerate and animate their industry and activity, to excite in them an habitual contempt of meanness, abhorrence of injustice and inhumanity, and an ambition to excel in every capacity, faculty, and virtue. If we suffer their minds to grovel and creep in infancy, 
they will grovel all their lives, unquote. John Adams, Dissertation on the Canon and Feudal Law, 1756. What geniuses our founding fathers were, in fact, and what a miserable state of dishonor America has sunk to with its current breed of politicians, all of whom are nothing but puppets of Mystery Babylon, the international Jewish banking system called fractional reserve banking. So, folks, with these words, maybe I can squeeze in this quotation from James Madison. As every appeal to the people would carry an implication of some defect in the government, Frequent appeals would be in great measure deprive deprive the government of that veneration which time bestows on everything and without which perhaps the wisest and freest governments would not possess the requisite stability. If it be true that all governments rest on opinion, it is no less that the strength of opinion in each individual and its practical influence on his conduct depend much on the number of which he supposes to have entertained the same opinion. In other words, there has to be a consensus. The reason of man, like man himself, is timid and cautious when left alone and acquires firmness and confidence in proportion to the number with which it is associated. That's why the Jews manufacture opinion. When the examples which which fortify opinion are ancient as well as numerous, they are known to have a double effect. In a nation of philosophers, this consideration ought to be disregarded. A reverence for the laws would be sufficiently inculcated by the voice of an enlightened reason. But a nation of philosophers is as little to be expected as the philosophical race of kings wished by Plato. Of course, that has never happened. And in every other nation, the most rational government will not find it a superfluous advantage to have the prejudices of the community on its side. James Madison, Federalist number 49. So, James Madison was a true respecter of the general ignorance of the people and how easily they are manipulated. And on that note, we will conclude today's show. Thanks for listening. Glad to be back on the air. This is the Restoration Hour. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. See you all next time. Bye-bye. Free people will never remain free. If they are not willing, if need be, to fight for their vital...